0: Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1
1: KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at
0: kpfa.org. I'm C.S. Song, KPFA's Associate Theater Critic, and my guests in studio are John Collins and Scott Shepard. They're both part of Elevator Repair Service, a theater ensemble that created and is now presenting a play called Gats at Berkeley Repertory Theater. John is the artistic director of Elevator Repair Service, and he's the director of the current production. Scott plays the role of Nick Carraway, the narrator of and prominent character in The Great Gatsby, the novel on which Gats is based. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, so John, let's start with... uh, what does this play Gats do to and with the classic novel, the great Gatsby?
1: Well, it's almost better to talk about what it does to us. Mm. Um, this is uh it almost feels funny uh, calling it a play. I mean, it is, it is a theatrical performance, but it's a theatrical performance of, uh, of every single word of the novel, uh, which is why I think of it as doing something to us rather than vice versa. Um, the play, such as it is, is, is set uh, in a very unlikely place for The Great Gatsby. I think most people, when they walk into the theater, they, they will immediately realize that, that, that we're doing something a little counterintuitive because they'll see a sort of run-down office uh, with, with drab walls and floor and stacks and stacks of paper and boxes and uh, some outdated office technology. Um, but the play is basically, um, uh, what happens when a guy who works in that office, uh, comes in, has trouble getting his computer started, uh, finds a copy of The Great Gatsby and just starts to read it. And over the course of, uh, our tidy little six and a half hour play, uh, the novel gets read in its entirety and also becomes, uh, becomes real to him and gets gradually more and more fully staged.
0: So in other words, it's not enacted in the scenes created by Fitzgerald, the novelist. It's not, you know, you don't see Gatsby's mansion or the Buchanan's house or something like that. That's right. I mean,
1: you hear every word he uses to describe those places. So we we provide, in a sense, we provide every single detail of the book in its original form, which is, which is in words so it's a it's it's an exercise in activating the audience's imagination that way, and it is um what we represent on stage is is more the act of reading than than a literalized um, you know illustrated version of of the novel
0: and why because John, you were part of the creation of this play, Gatz. Why include every single darn word of the novel? Why not abridge it? Why not shorten it? Why not present just maybe the, the key episodes, the iconic episodes in this novel? Well,
1: uh, Scott can also answer that question because he was around at the beginning too. But um, what we, you know, we, we picked up this novel uh, without a plan as to how we would, stage it or how we would turn it into theater and in fact we our initial impulse was to go to those scenes that you know made for an easier more intuitive theatrical interpretation and started trying to stage them and and even in the course of doing that i think we found that removing some of the text even little bits of he saids and she saids uh, seemed to disrupt some perfect balance that Fitzgerald had achieved, and I think that was at least part of what led us to the decision to to try to do it verbatim and and that was a decision that we made i think in a self consciously perverse way because especially at that time we we like to take on projects that gave us a kind of impossible assignment <laughs> you know we we like to have Ridiculous problems to try to solve uh, by creating a piece of theater, knowing that much of the time we didn't succeed in doing that thing that we that assignment that we gave ourselves, but that in the process we in the struggle, we would uh, we would come to something exciting and interesting and that we hadn't anticipated. And I think in this case, what we didn't anticipate was that we would actually do it, and we actually did it here.
0: And Scott, what do you want to add about the, the process of initial conceptualization of this play?
2: Well, yeah, well, the way I remember it was um, we, when we brought The Great Gatsby into the rehearsal room for the first time, uh, the idea wasn't that we were going to do The Great Gatsby even. It was m- maybe going to be one ingredient in our next concoction. Uh, We were used to sort of devising crazy shows out of a multitude of sources and putting a lot of different ingredients together. And one of them this time, it seemed like, might be a few choice passages from The Great Gatsby. And so I remember us kind of uh, picking out what seemed like the hardest ones to do, the parties, there's too many characters, more characters than we had actors for. And so we were putting uh, googly eyes on various uh, mundane household objects like uh, an old shoe or a, a like a clamp, one of those orange-handled clamps, or um, a thermos. Put, put two eyes on top of a thermos. That turned out to be kind of the most uh, appealing character
1: He makes a cameo in the current production.
2: (laughs) But uh, I think what we quickly discovered was that um, taking a piece of it out, uh, it really lost its power. There was something in the remarkable composition of these sentences and paragraphs that was the magic of that text. And uh, so as we were sort of... Uh, realizing that somebody had the idea of, you know, maybe we should just read this entire book and make that the show. And I became very excited about that idea. It related to uh, something we'd heard about before, which was a stunt that Andy Kaufman used to do. And I think he would show up in comedy clubs as if he was going to do a comedy routine, but he would, uh, in a kind of pompous voice, start reading The Great Gatsby, and he'd just continue reading until people walked out or <laughs> booed him off the stage.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the novel, the language is poetic, the language is amazing. Um, in terms of themes, what do you think, what do both of you think is is the reason for its enduring appeal, for its status as uh, the great Amer- one of the great American classics, one of the the great pieces of literature?
2: It's an interesting question uh, because I think it's a book that did not automatically find its place as the great American novel, but that once once it's kind of settled there, it's hard to dislodge. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Fitzgerald died feeling that it was a failure of a book, and it was really only after his death, somewhere in the early 1950s, um, that it was rediscovered or, um, uh, by a particular publisher. In fact, it was part of this program where books were issued to the soldiers I- in World War II, and hmm. uh, there's a theory that that's kind of what put it back on the, in the American consciousness. I-, I have a feeling that it was so of its time that it was dismissible, Like if you had a book about uh, a love affair, a love triangle among the Kardashians set now with a lot of references to social media and whatnot, we might dismiss it as kind of frivolous even if it was written beautifully and had all sorts of uh, literary merits. I guess I have a personal theory that that's what happened to The Great Gatsby when it first arrived. It was – Slightly dismissed as a magazine story, padded out to novel length.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think it did have. It was not just the Great Gatsby, but I think a lot of the modernist writing was rejected as magazine writing, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't broadcast its you know literary weight in the same way that maybe novels from the late 18th century had. But you asked about themes in it, and I and that. There's something about the way it's written and it's sort of, it's very compact and efficient that, I mean, I think one of the reasons that it endures is that it's it's easy to teach. You know, it does have these, you know, it does have themes you can talk about, uh, but I think they tend to obscure sometimes the greatness of the novel because there are certain ideas that the that the novel uh, plays with, you know, the American dream, the self-made man, um, you know, the unrequited love, these kinds of things, which, you know, they're all present, they're all a part of this great work, but, but after all this exposure I've had to it, I, I feel like the greatness of it is in something a little more subtle than that. It is in the the story as a kind of coming-of-age story for Nick, and that it's a more interesting and compelling and enduring novel as the story of Nick Carraway than it is as the story of Jay Gatsby.
0: Right. And in fact, Scott, your colleague there in studio, he performs the role of Nick Carraway, the narrator of The Great Gatsby. Um, although uh, you might agree with me, Scott, that to call him simply the narrator is doing him an injustice because he he's a full-fledged character. He takes part in the novel. He observes a lot of things. He he does a lot of things in this novel. Uh, how do we how do you begin to describe uh Nick and maybe his development, his process of maturation over time in this novel, in this theatrical production, Gatsby?
2: Uh yeah, I mean Nick is very interesting. Of course, he he sort of um announces himself. He introduces himself at the beginning of the book as a person who reserves all judgments and then proceeds to tell a story which is kind of rooted in his judgment <laughs> of, of everyone around him. And his relation to, relationship to Gatsby is uh, very interesting. You know, there's so much admiration and also so much uh, disapproval at the same time. And he serves as a sort of um, counterexample. While Gatsby's involved in this heightened love story, he's involved in a relationship of his own that's full of ambivalence. He serves as a kind of counterpoint to the grandeur of the story he's telling. And a thing you might have forgotten if you haven't read the book since high school is how the novel ends, the last chapter, is really sort of uh, Nick's assessment of where the whole thing has left him. A little bit disgusted, you know. He leaves New York and goes back home uh, somewhat defeated, and, uh, but also wiser. He's found a new perspective on the relationships of people to each other and to their dreams
0: the voice of Scott Shepherd. He is part of Berkeley Rep's presentation of GATS, the play created and performed by Elevator Repair Service. That's a New York-based theater company, and this play, GATS, is on stage now at Berkeley Rep through March 1st. It's been extended through March 1st. Also joining me in studio is John Collins. He's founder and artistic director of Elevator Repair Service, and he directs this production, as I suspect, he's directed every production of GATS over the years by elevator repair service in this country and in many places around the globe. You know, I kind of want to give people a sense, because maybe they read this novel in high school, I, I think I did, uh, but yeah, about the plot. And rather than kind of go into the plot and rehearse it, because, you know, people who go see it will see what is happening... Maybe I could just throw out the names of a few of the main characters, and either of you could just give me a few sentences about, you know, kind of the characteristics that stand out, or maybe the the key uh, plot twists that involve this character, just to give people a sense of what they might see. So, for example, uh, Jay Gatsby.
2: Well, uh, Jay Gatsby is the mysterious central character of this story. He's... um Nobody quite understands who he is. They think he might be a bootlegger. He's got sort of a shady past. Is he some sort of mobster? All we know is he's giving the best parties on uh, Long Island that anybody has ever seen. And uh, what we gradually come to understand is there's a great longing that's at the base of this, uh, of his appearance on Long Island and uh, his crazy hospitality.
0: Tom Buchanan?
2: So Tom Buchanan is the husband of uh, Daisy. Daisy is Gatsby's great love interest. And uh, Tom is, uh, if Gatsby is the nouveau rich, Tom is the established rich. He's uh, come from uh, Chicago and, uh, <clears throat> with a string of polo ponies. And uh, he's the great antagonist of the story.
0: And he has a kind of a, a kind of a, an aggressive quality to him. Does he not? He
1: does. He's uh, how's he described? Give us something from the book, Scott.
2: Yeah, he was one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven. One of those men who reached such an acute, limited excellence at twenty-one that everything afterwards savors of anticlimax. Tom is really one of the most uh, most colorfully depicted characters in the in the book
0: and what about a little bit more about Daisy Faye Buchanan she is from Louisville Um, she's old money as well she as you said is the the target of Jay Gatsby's longing years long longing if we could put it that way Uh, what else should people know about her? It's
1: interesting because uh, she may be one of the least well-drawn characters in the in the novel, and and exists as a sort of ideal to Gatsby. Um, she's young. She's uh, what do we think Daisy's like? Twenty-five, mm-hmm. maybe maybe younger. She at one time was very much in love with Gatsby, but he went away to the war. They lost touch with each other. He was trapped in Europe in World War One, And she gave up waiting for him and, uh, and marries Tom Buchanan. And she has a little girl with Tom Buchanan. And uh, she is briefly wooed back into, into Gatsby's world and his life, but then um, gets cold feet when she starts to learn a little bit more about who he really is now.
2: Right. By the time Gatsby finds her, she's unhappily married. She's having, um, she's having all sorts of problems with Tom, who's not uh, the most faithful of husbands.
0: So it's a, as you said, John, it's a six and a half hour production. This is asking a lot, of course, from audiences and from the cast. So was that a risk, do you think, uh, creating something that would, that would really occupy people's time? Absolutely, I mean it I mean,
1: in a funny way when when we first articulated that idea, it wasn't it didn't feel like a risk because I just thought there's no way we'd actually do that. <laughs> I thought there was no risk we would we would even do it because again it was it was a sort of proposal to you know send us headlong into uh, some kind of crazy as yet unsolved problem that we would figure out somehow and I remember even early on thinking, well, we'll, we'll, we were kind of working our way through the book, staging it in order. And and for some reason, it sticks in my head that we were probably going to end up cutting some of chapter four. And as we worked our way through it, that, that point where it got old or seemed to drag just never came. And it was, I think it was around there that we started to realize that this text really had the power to sustain itself as a live performance. And that was a you know, that was a huge revelation. So somewhere around the time we were working our way through the second half, and I think we really understood that this was going to be the way to present this thing, uh, then we started to worry about the, the time. And early on, and for years, actually, we, we presented it almost as two separate shows, we we would have, in that first run we had of it, we would do, you know, part one on Thursday night, part two on Friday night. And then on the weekends, we would do a marathon of the whole thing. Um, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit that it took a few years of, of trying to uh, hedge against the audience's restlessness, you know, uh, before we realized that actually the audiences that had the best experience by far were the ones who started with chapter one in the afternoon and finished chapter nine in the evening of the same day. And that, that was another revelation was that that was that sense of accomplishment that the audience takes away having heard the whole novel in a, in a day um, turned out to be one of the more rewarding Aspects of the of the whole production,
0: yeah, and in fact at Berkeley Rep you can see it in two installments. One beginning at two p.m. and the second beginning after dinner. And so yes, you do get the whole experience, uh, six and a half hours, in one day. There are intermissions. There's a break for dinner. You can go to berkeleyrep.org to find out more about the play we were talking about today, the theatrical production called Gats at Berkeley Repertory Theater. Now, Scott, you were reciting a little bit from the novel, and I read something, and it's, it's impossible to believe, and so therefore I think it's impossible that you've memorized the entire damn novel. Um, you're going to tell me that you have not memorized the entire damn novel, right?
2: No, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs>
0: but in fact?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it was an accident. It's just uh, kind of happened to me as a result of reading this book out loud. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, it starts to sink in. I mean, there's um, such pleasure in the just the composition of the sentences. The book is really just such a remarkable sustained performance in sentences that come at whatever the point is in a surprising direction. So there's so much pleasure in the text. So that if you remember it slightly wrong, when you go back to look and find the corrected version, there's just a burst of dopamine <laughs> or something. And so that, that serves to uh, make memorizing it, I think, kind of easy. It, for me, it happened pretty much involuntarily.
0: That, that's, that's a crazy thing to hear, but I'm going to try and take that in. So I take it you have an unusually good memory when it comes to, to other things besides this novel?
2: Yeah, I well, not for um, where I left my keys <laughs> or the names that go with faces. But uh, <laughs> yes, for uh, sequences of words, I seem to have a knack for that.
0: I did read that there is a little game... That you sometimes play called Stump the Freak. That's right. Okay, good. So uh, this is where people try and stump you by reading out a few lines of the book from Mm -hmm. which you have to follow up. Can we try that very briefly? Yes. Okay, good. So I've picked something out here, and uh, I'm going to read the following. I'm going to read a couple sentences. Reading over what I've written so far, I see I have given the impression that the events events of of
2: three nights several weeks apart were all that absorbed me. On the contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer, and until much later, they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs.
1: i want to encourage you to test him on three words, not three sentences It's much too easy
0: <laughs> well i wanted to give i wanted to start with something easy okay so John's let's tra- har- let, hardcore so let's <laughs> uh, let's start here three words literally okay um three <clears throat> words well, uh, try this one um okay. Daisy and Gatsby danced. I
2: remember being surprised by his graceful, conservative foxtrot. I'd never seen him dance
0: before. Okay, that's absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, you can see him live in person at Berkeley Repertory Theater. Um, how much of this play is about the power that a book? can exert on a reader. Now, I think, John, maybe you mentioned this at the beginning, but yeah, it's about the book and enacting the book in a certain way, but obviously this book has an insane, uh, growing, increasingly intense impact on on the office worker, right?
2: You know, the piece starts out with uh, with just a guy in an in office whose computer won't work, so he's he starts reading a book out loud. But what gradually happens is that things that are happening in the office start to coincide with things that are described in the book. And this is never really completely explained, but it's there's just a sense of, of the book kind of spreading out and taking over the surroundings. And so I think that serves as a kind of uh, analogy for – what your imagination does when it's reading sort of flowers outward.
1: I also think that's a, that is a, something that aligns well with the novel in that the novel is as much about the imagination of those people who come to Gatsby's parties and, and who gather around tables trying to figure out who he is and what he does. And there's so much um, speculation and mystery about Gatsby himself in the book, that it, um, it is a novel about imagination that way as well. And Gatsby himself um, is not Gatsby, he's James Gatz. And he uh, reimagined his own identity and himself in, in a way that, that crumbles in the end, so that it, it's almost his whole identity is a kind of, um, is something ethereal. It's not even real it's it's a product of his imagination. So th- this is, that makes me feel comfortable representing it in this counterintuitive way that calls on the audience to, to do that same work of imagining what's being described.
0: John Collins, Artistic Director of Elevator Repair Service, Scott Shepard, who's performed with Elevator Repair Service since 1994, and they are part of the play, the theatrical production they have created and are now performing at Berkeley Repertory Theater. It's called GATS. And I want to thank you both for uh, coming in and, Scott, for impressing me so much. Although, John, what you say is also really impressive. Uh, Best wishes for uh, this production.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And I'm C.S. Song on Bay Area Theater for KPFA.